Welcome back to the 90th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why mental health for men is different than mental health for women, and why we have a problem dealing with it, how marriage actually encourages long-term happiness for women, and a very ironic article talking about ChatGPT and how its ideas were stolen by Stanford University, and we'll get to that one. I think it's just a little bit funny and ironic. And then, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. Mental health is a very serious topic here in the United States, and it has been on the decline for a while. More young adults are claiming to feel hopelessness. They're diagnosed with anxiety or depression. So what do you think is driving this wave of despair? Is it society? Is it thoughts about the future? Give me your opinion, because there are lots of different ones out there. And, you know, some people will say institutions are falling apart. They don't have something to believe in. I would argue gentlemen don't seem to have a purpose Ladies don't necessarily have a long-term relationship, but that doesn't necessarily drive all the despair. There has to be more than that. So if you could throw your opinions down in the comment section, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Let's start a discussion. All right, let's jump to our first article. This one comes from the New York Post. We must stop using a female model to treat men's mental health. So obviously, you know, Whether we like to, some people like to acknowledge it or not, men and women very often have very different approaches to handling certain situations. And this new article really tries to break down the fact that men are not being served properly by the mental health system that is currently in place, or at least how that system is choosing to deal with the growing numbers of men who feel anxious, depressed, and who have become very desperate to find a solution. So I'll start with the quote. Quote, men make up 49% of the population, but nearly 80% of all the suicides. Every 13.7 minutes, a man takes his life somewhere in the U.S. Depression is present in at least 50% of these suicides, according to Canada's Center for Suicide Prevention. Along with medication... Psychology therapy can help alleviate depression symptoms, for women, that is, but less so for men. That's because we appear to have depression all wrong, end quote. And, you know, we'll see where the author goes from this, but these statistics are very, very scary. Because at the end of the day, if we're losing men faster than we're losing women... That And they're already a minority. And when I say that, obviously, there are a lot of men. But the majority of the population is women. I believe last time that I checked, it was about 55%. So there's already more women than there are men. And if these numbers continue, then we're going to have less women who are able to find long-term male partners. And that's why you may see some women choosing to have female partners or pursuing female partners because there's more women and men are not necessarily as available or 
because they start to see these numbers of men who feel purposeless. They believe, and let's be clear, I'm not saying, oh, the women see these numbers, they read these articles, and they're like, oh, well, you know, men are experiencing this thing, and they're obviously feeling purposeless, they're not driven, they're dealing with depression. Let me just turn to it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they could all be correlated to some degree. And it is scary when you see these sort of numbers that 80% of all suicides are male. Then again, it does make some sense in that males usually use a gun. And while the number of attempted suicides may be higher among women, they are not necessarily as likely to take the final option. They're less hesitant to do the ultimate, which is they may try to take different cocktails of drugs in order to go under and they survive and it's deemed an overdose, things of this nature. So how is the system failing them? Because it brings up the fact that with medication and therapy, this can normally alleviate depression. But then, obviously, that's the little ending piece that that's more for women than men. So how is the system failing them? Or at least, what are the differences between sex sexes that makes the system fail them? And let's jump to a quote. Quote, back in 2005, the APA noted that those in the psychological community we're coming to think that the traditional signs of depression, sadness, worthlessness, excessive guilt, may not represent many men's experiences of a depressive period. Unfortunately, not long after, the sex is a construct narrative started gaining traction, and the APA began denying the differences between the sexes actually exist. Soon after, the APA decided to label qualities associated with traditional masculinity as psychologically harmful. Having effectively turned its back on men, it is it any wonder that the current system is so ill-equipped to help the men of America, end quote. And this is a really strong position that the author's taking here. He's saying that if the institution that sets the standards for a lot of what is perceived as the best practices for therapy and they're doing it in a way that is supposed to be gender neutral, and they're not acknowledging that men and women think differently, then it's actually going to harm men in the long term. Or if it was a the opposite, if it was focused more on how men deal with depression, then it would hurt women long term. So what they're getting at is that in order to actually fully address this problem, we have to acknowledge that men and women think differently. And, of course, there is some societal thought processes that are in there. And it's not just, oh, you are a man biologically, therefore you think differently than a woman. It's not quite that simple. But there still are certain traits that men are predisposed to have and women are not and vice versa. So by not acknowledging that there are these sex differences, the difference between the sexes, we're actually doing men a disservice. So let's actually talk about what male depression looks like and what sometimes they're looking for when they are looking for help dealing with this depression, anxiety, so on and so forth. Quote, Adam Lane Smith, a licensed psychotherapist who specializes in treating both men and women, says that male depression tends to revolve around feelings of helplessness and powerlessness Quote, men need the ability to change their environment, create an impact that lasts, a legacy, and either to stop their pain or to make it have purpose, he explains. They are less interested in having their feelings validated and more interested in finding a solution. They want answers, and they want them now, end quote. And I really do think this speaks to 
the mentality or the traditional mentality of men. And I've had this discussion with multiple people before. When someone comes and talks to me, it's a friend that's a girl of mine. She has an issue and she wants me to just listen. And I didn't get this for a long time. And it was one of my bigger flaws, which is I just need to listen. But very often I would oppose, all right, what if we do this? How about you do this? Have you tried this? What about this? And they told me, you're not being sensitive enough. You're not actually listening to what I'm saying. You're just proposing idea after idea after idea. And I would always bring up, well, that's because if you're feeling a certain way, then what can you do? What can we do to alleviate it rather than just talking about it and not realizing that sometimes just talking about it for women is enough and it allows them to get it off their chest. They can move on from it. They don't have to allow it to burden them. But for men, it's no, no, no. How do we solve it? We want a solution. We want an end goal. We want to work towards something. And that is ever more true when it comes to our personal ails. We don't like sitting around, or at least I can speak for myself and some of my friends. We don't like sitting around doing nothing about a problem and having people say, oh, it's okay. Because when you hear that phrase, it's okay, then you wonder, wait, if it's okay, then is something wrong with me? Am I the problem? And let's be clear, that could just be men taking it too personally, but we want to find a solution. We want to be able, like they said, to change our situation. We don't want to feel that we have no power over the situation. We want to believe in our heart that we can actually have an effect, that we can change something. And that's a very powerful and empowering tool for men. And when you sit them down in these therapy sessions like Dr. Lane Smith is saying and just validate their feelings rather than actually proposing solutions or making sure they're focusing on working towards something and having a solution that they can implement, it doesn't necessarily benefit them as much. And this is why therapy has failed. And Lane does, Lane Smith does continue here. Quote, another reason is that most therapy sessions center around making men feel better, more loved, more connected, Smith notes. However, the vast majority of time, he said men feel powerless. So making them feel loved while still feeling powerless makes them feel more like a burden, not less of one. Quote, in other words, we are trying to treat male-based depression using female-oriented approaches. And this is like making male therapy patients feel even worse, end quote. And that part of being a burden is important because at the end of the day, if you know, if someone keeps reinforcing something to you, you're talking to your significant other, and they say, I love you, I love you, I'm going to stick with you while you are dealing with this hard thing, while you're dealing with this really hard time, you do feel loved, and that is great. Don't get me wrong. But then at the end of the day, if you feel powerless to fix your situation, and you also know that many people love you, and that they may be depending on you for some sort of emotional stability financial stability, you may feel stuck. You may feel like, oh, I can't fix this situation. I'm not doing it for myself, which makes me feel bad. And then now that I know I'm loved, my feeling bad is actually hurting the people around me. Now that is me extrapolating a little bit, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hold true. And I think if we want to fix this going forward, we need to acknowledge that one, 
there are the differences between the sexes. But two, we also need to give men the tools. There were there are certain therapy techniques that I've been able to look up in the past, which is visualize something like a leaf going down a river and let it go to get these anxious thoughts. Give practical tools that allow men to actively work towards something rather than just validating their feelings and let them talk. Another thing is cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, where you kind of step in in your own thought process and you say, no, this is where my thinking is going wrong. And that was something I always found very helpful when I was just younger, where I would you know, interject and say, okay, why am I thinking this? Is this actually a good thought process? And it gives men agency to step in to, during their thought process and analyze what's going on. And rather than feeling sad about what they're feeling, they're actually breaking down why they're feeling it and working towards a more positive mindset. But that also works for women, too. That's not exclusively for men. But it is something that allows men to have agency. And I think it should be stressed a lot more. And you don't even need a therapist for that, in theory. Now, does that mean that everybody can get away with not having therapists? No, not even close. But at the end of the day, if we want to fix the solution, if we want to have a solution, we need to acknowledge men and women are different and treat them so when dealing with these major mental health problems. Because at the end of the day, men and women, they are the basis for our society. They create children through reproduction. So without a core of men and women who are healthy and able to bear children, able to interact within our social systems, able to participate in government, things start to fall down. And, you know, speaking of that union between man and woman, there's an interesting article from the Wall Street Journal. For long-term health and happiness, marriage still matters. And this is the second one we're going to be jumping to today. So I'll give a little bit of a history that the article opens with because I found it pretty interesting. Quote, when European travelers first encountered the Walpari of Australia's outback or the Kalapoko of in the Amazon basin in the 19th century, at least one institution would have been familiar amid the weather of cultural differences. As in the West, life among the Walpari and Kalapoo is profoundly shaped by marriage. In their own ways, the members of both these societies strive to attract desirable spouses and then raise children and forego a life together. An anthropologist, Joseph Heinrich, observes, despite important variations in this form across cultures, marriage represents the keystone institution for most, not all, societies and maybe the most primal of human institutions, end quote. So why they bring this up? Because at the end of the day, in America, we have had a drift away from the institution of marriage, claiming that it's unnatural, it is a social construct. And I'm not saying that it's not, because at the end of the day, I don't think it is, but that doesn't mean there isn't validity to the argument that it is. And there needs to be more research done over time. But what this anthropologist is bringing up is the fact that we see these trends emerge in different cultures that have not necessarily interacted with one another across the different places of the world. And that is evidence that maybe there's something more than it just being societally created. And even if that's not the case, maybe it was created by the society because it is beneficial in some way to the society, which in my mind would be well, a union of man and woman, 
allows for more children. More children means in, let's go back to the early days of human existence, more children means more people hunting, which means more food, more workers, more, if you're going to more modern times, more labor to have in the economy, therefore more people to sell products to, more people to buy those products, more tax dollars for the government. You see how children are very important to sustaining society and also the systems that we have built on top of it. So maybe that's why we see these marriages or unions between people showing up in these different cultures around the world because we realize at some level it's advantageous or maybe it's a biological imperative because at the end of the day you want if you are a man and you have to protect every single woman in the clan equally then that's harder to do than choosing to be in a union with one woman and protecting her more ferociously than you could protect all the other women and I don't know that that biological one that feels a little bit weak to me, but maybe there's something there and we could explore it. But that's beyond the point. So we understand the history. We understand why it's important that we start with this little bit of context. So what about a our perception of marriage nowadays? I mentioned that it's kind of falling out of style, so to speak. Quote, as reliable contraception has lowered the stakes of sex and women have achieved political and in some cases economic equality with men, perhaps marriage has now become more merely optional, a capstone rather than a cornerstone of a successful life. Still, there are good reasons to doubt the benefits of a post-Naples society, as comparisons of married people, either with never-married people or the divorced, have generally found that the former are healthier and happier than the latter, even today, end quote. And the author brings this up, and most people, you know, they fight back against this, like, oh, no, if I don't want to get married, I'm not going to be happy being forced into this institution of marriage. And, of course, if you're forced into it, you're never going to be happy with it. But if you choose to engage in it, then there's a new study that the article brings up that is meant to highlight there are happiness benefits, there are health benefits to being in a long-term, stable relationship. Quote, in a new study in the journal Global epidemiology, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, we and our co-authors have sought to address those critiques. We examine 11,830 American nurses, all women who were initially never married, and compare those who got married between 1989 and 1993 with those who remained unmarried. We assess how their lives turned out on a wide range of important outcomes, including psychology, well-being, health, longevity, after about 25 years. And I'll interject here, they did control for premarital well-being, so they had a baseline for each person rather than there just being a generalized statistic that they used during this study. Quote, our findings were striking. The women who got married in the initial time frame included those who, including those who subsequently got divorced, had a 35% lower risk of death for any reason over the follow-up period than those who did not marry in that period. Compared to those who didn't marry, the married women also had lower risk of cardiovascular disease, less depression and loneliness, were happier and more optimistic, and had a greater sense of purpose and hope, end quote. And I can't necessarily speak to the pure medical benefits, the cardiovascular disease, 
But I think loneliness and depression makes sense because if you feel that if you choose not to get married or you're trying to get married but you haven't found the right person, you're not married, then you might believe and start to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe people aren't choosing me for a particular reason. Maybe I don't have certain qualities, blah, blah, blah. But if you have been married, even if you do get divorced, you know there is someone that has loved you, that you're capable of being loved, you're a person that is not desperate to die alone, these sort of things. So I could see how that would affect, on a base level, the levels of depression and loneliness among this group of nurses that they were testing. And it really does speak to the fact that at the end of the day, marriages at least to a small degree, I mean, 35% lower risk for a lot of these problems, that doesn't necessarily seem like a lot. But I would take a 35% lower risk of having a heart attack by the time I'm 50 if I could find someone that I love and I want to marry for the rest of my life. I feel like that's a pretty good bargain, in my opinion, rather than having that person you love but not getting married, never fully committing to one another, you know, maybe there are, they could do another study where people that are just lifelong partners that don't actually get married, that have kids together and these sort of things, maybe that would have a similar outcome. I feel like maybe it could. I also do feel like at the end of the day, there's something unique about marriage, which is you are committing your life to somebody else, not just in the legal sense, but in a, a spiritual sense. You are saying, I want to unite us as, I mean, if you believe the old way of saying it, one flesh. But even beyond that, I want to unite us in a bond that will last our entire lives. There's something very deep about that. There's something that provides greater purpose than your own wills and wants. It allows you to think beyond yourself, which can be very beneficial, and it can widen your horizons. And this goes for both men and women. And I want to see a study done on men and how it affects their longevity. Because at the end of the day, we've known, or at least it's been socially accepted for a long time, that women, even after their partner dies, outlive men. So they're more predisposed to longevity if their partner dies first in a marriage. But I want to see this study done on men. I think it'd be very interesting. But what the author's getting at is it really does speak to the fact that marriage is important. And the fact that marriage is falling out of favor, as I mentioned earlier, is having deep effects on the culture. Quote, in view of marriage's profound effects on our sample health and well-being, it is unsettled to it is unsettling to consider its rapid displacement from American life. In 2021, for instance, the annual marriage rate reached at an all-time low of 28 marriages per 1,000 unmarried people, down from 76.5 in 1965, a trend driven both by rapid increases in cohabitation and by even steeper rises in individuals living alone. So, too, the U.S. leads the world in the percentage of children growing up in a single-parent home, 23% in 2019, compared to, for example, 12% in Germany. All of these trends are concentrated among poor Americans and people of color who arguably have the most to gain from the safety net offered by marriage, end quote. And this is where we speak about the culture, the society. At the end of the day, we always want to help the people that are the most disadvantaged. 
but we don't always preach things that are actually going to help those certain populations. Sometimes we say we need to redistribute money on the government level. We need the federal government to step in and you know take money from the rich and give it to the poor. And at the end of the day, maybe if we were to insist on social change and make sure that these people jump into institutions that are tried and true, that provide stability, that allow them to join their income with somebody else to raise a child who grows up in a stable house with both parents there and has the opportunity to go to college, make some money, provide for their parents as they get a little bit older. Maybe if we install that in the society, it could have a greater effect than any sort of redistribution or benefits program that the government could provide. Now, you know, that's just my opinion on that one, and it doesn't necessarily always hold true. Marriages do fall apart, and that can cause more anxiety and stress later in life. But it's something that we need to genuinely consider and have a deeper conversation about, and that's why this article is important. It's going to start the conversation, even though it has been going on on one side of the aisle. Maybe it will start to breach through to the other side of the aisle, and it can actually be a conversation that's had about the values that we cherish on a societal level. All right. You know, I ranted enough on that one. I do want to jump to a really, really quick story that I just, ah, it's so beautiful. It's so ironic. This one comes from Hot Air. Oops, Stanford basically just stole ChatGPT and cloned it for 600 bucks. So, you know, ChatGPT, the natural generating language program, and how they've spent lots of money. Actually, you know, there's a background section of this article. I will read, you, read it from there because they could say it better than I ever could. Quote, we've been covering the explosion in popularity of ChatGPT and other artificial intelligence, large language models, chatbots, for a while now. A race has been on between the tech giants to develop and roll out their own products, even as people seem to struggle to understand what they would use them for. But perhaps all of these geeks racing to build their own versions have been wasting their time. It's being reported today that Stanford University's Center for Research quietly announced that they had realized their own AI chatbot called Alpaca GPT. But they didn't really develop it themselves. They essentially downloaded ChatGPT from OpenAI, set it up on their own system, and renamed it. And to anyone's surprise... They say that it exhibits many similar behaviors to OpenAI's model. So, who would have guessed that? End quote. So, yes, you, you heard that right. They basically downloaded ChatGBT, and they said, you know what, you know what, we're just going, instead of using your code as a launching point, we're just going to copy most of your code and change a few things, and, oh, look at that, it works basically the same. And you may be looking at me or thinking, Alex, why, why is this funny to you? Why is this a big deal? And at the end of the day, it's that Microsoft and OpenAI, quote, spent years and untold millions of dollars developing their models. Stanford just copied them. The modest cost was attributed to the number of hours for researchers that had invested in setting up the system, tweaking its training. The first and most obvious question should be, can they do that? Is it legal? End quote. And I do think that's a very valid concern. Is it legal to just outright copy the programming of a, another AI program that is licensed by OpenAI and owned by Microsoft 
I mean, it's not necessarily a smart move. Microsoft has millions of dollars. They are probably going to sue on this because you can't encourage people to just download. Now, let's be clear. People couldn't just download ChatGPT and have it run properly. You would need lots of servers and infrastructure, which is why Stanford did it, because they have that infrastructure in place. But if you were able to do this, then there would be no need to keep battling on and have these large tech battles between Google and Microsoft and Facebook all, like they said, racing to create a large language model. Because you could just download the old one, it could be open source, someone could open source it from there, and then they could just tweak it and make it better. And I honestly think this is the way that we should go about it. I think it should be decentralized in the future. The power should not rest in these large companies that may want to use these systems for profit. What happens in the future if Pfizer starts paying these large companies to recommend its product in some of the answers? Maybe in a really sly way so you don't notice. Or maybe they put a small badge, oh, sponsored by Pfizer. Or what if companies come in and say, we don't like the research results we're getting, or we don't like that our competitor is getting this. Hey, could we downgrade the amount of results they get in ChatGPT and we'll pay you large sums of money? Obviously, that's very unethical. It could even be anti-competitive. But if the profit's there and it could be algorithmically done behind the scenes and really hard to find out, then what would stop these companies from doing it? And I'm not saying at the end of the day they're going to. I'm not saying they're malicious and they want to and they're only profit-driven. But these are considerations that we have to make. So if this technology is decentralized, people can work on it, alter the code, and then people can see the base code out there on the Internet, then you can make sure that you're not being biased, uh, you're not being pushed in one direction or another from your answers, that it's trying to give you the best information, the best answer, without any sort of bias in there at all. And, you know, at the end of the day, it is ironic that a large language model, these AI programs, that they take all this different information from across the web, from all their different training data sets, and they're just mushing them together and making a new product, that Stanford does the same thing with ChatGPT. They take the old product, a few different pieces from here and there, and then mush them together and make a so-called new product. It really does speak to the heart of this ethical problem with AI, and I do find it very ironic. That's why I was kind of giggling at the beginning. But that was a nice little short one. Just wanted to cover it, you know, keep you up to date with what's going on with GPT. And like I said, the irony is just, oh, it's too good. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one, again, is from Boing Boing. And the title reads, The Ribbon Seal is an Incredibly Cute and Elusive Ice Seal. So I don't know if I'm just informed or unaware, but I was never, never aware of the species of seal that are called ribbon seals. But they are extremely cute. Quote, here's a cute animal that you should know. The ribbon seal... It's the most elusive of the ice seals, relatively solitary, and rarely observed on land. They are born with thick white coats, but eventually develop the distinct black and white ribbon patterns they are known for, end quote. And it really is a unique pattern. I had never seen anything like it before. It's not like a zebra pattern. It seems random. It kind of just streaks across their body. But, I, you know, I thought it was unique and very interesting. Another interesting point about them that I found. Actually, I'll preface it. I basically, I think they're the opossum of the sea, basically. Quote, 
They also play dead when captured until they can escape. And obviously they are incredibly adorable. Just look at them. Here are a few short videos that you can watch and learn more about ribbon seals and see their cuteness in action, end quote. And if you want to catch any of those cute videos, any of the photos, or read any of today's articles, there is a link in the description below where you can find all of it. Also down there, there are links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, Google Podcasts, where you can download and listen on the go. And also down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, where I post the link on Monday, Wednesday, Friday to the YouTube video so you don't have to go searching for it. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.